which features creative conversations with artists, academics, and activists who identified with or were influenced by the punk and riot girl subcultures. I'm your host, Eleanor Callett Whitney, a feminist, writer, and marketer based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of the forthcoming book, Riot Woman, a collection of memoir-infused essays about how Riot Girl has shaped my life. On this show, I'll be talking with a diverse range of guests and invite them to reflect on how punk, feminism, and the do-it-yourself spirit has impacted their adult lives and the work they make. Today's episode features Dr. Lauren Jade Martin a feminist sociologist of reproduction who researches the social impact of assisted reproductive technologies. Her first book, Reproductive Tourism in the United States, Creating Family in the Mother Country, is published by Rutledge. Lauren is currently an associate professor of sociology and coordinator of the women's studies minor at Penn State University, Berks, and lives in Philadelphia. She was also the author of zines such as Quantify and You Might As Well Live. In this episode, I talk with Lauren about her discovery of zines and participation in the riot girl culture in the 1990s, working in feminist social services, her academic work around reproductive justice and technology, being childless as women in our 30s and 40s, and how the do-it-yourself spirit of punk continues to influence her life. We also speculate about the Bikini Kill reunion. Enjoy! Hi, Lauren. Hey, Eleanor. (laughs) What's up? Hey, um, I'm really excited to be uh, here with you in Philly um, in your beautiful upstairs office space. We're surrounded by great sociology books and books on feminism and fiction. Um, so it's very good setting for our talk today. To start, uh, could you introduce yourself and just tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. <laughs> I'm Lauren Jade Martin. I am a sociology and women's studies professor. Um, so that is what I do. And <laughs> I guess who I am. I'm from New York City. Um, I have a dog named Mazzy and a cat named Paris, um, and it's like to be here. Yay! I'm really excited to have you. For those who may not know you, Lauren has been a huge inspiration for me around feminism and especially intersectional feminism uh, and zines and politics and Riot Girl for many, many years. Um, we were roommates for about seven years and had a cat named Ida B. Wells together. Oh, Ida. May she rest in peace. Um, Both of them, both Ida B. Wells. So let's start at the beginning of our conversation today. How did you discover zines and Riot Girl? Sure. Um, I was taking a summer art class on Staten Island, which is where I'm from. And I had one teacher, I believe she was our drawing teacher, while we drew um, with charcoal or whatever, pencil, she would frequently read to us. She would read poetry, she would read fiction, she would read nonfiction. And one day she read to us from this pamphlet made by this woman named Sarah Dyer um, called Doing Your Own Zine. And Sarah Dyer actually lived on Staten Island um, up the block from where I used to live. Um, So I was very intrigued by this. Um, So after the teacher read this out loud to us, she gave us all copies of this pamphlet, which is all about how to do your own zine. So I was really excited about this. Had never heard of zines before. Um, I wrote to Sarah. I was like, hey, I used to live down your street, and I, now I live, you know, a couple miles away. And I just started to write her, and she um, got me interested in zines. And somehow, I lived in New York City, so I would go to, I might have seen zines in Tower Records, um, and I was probably already a subscriber to Sassy Magazine. Um, but I don't think I'd ever had a, my own zine that I had purchased. Um, so that I really got hooked up with that um, through Sarah Dyer and corresponding with her. Um, yeah, and that's also how I discovered Riot Girl was probably through Sarah Dyer, who was also um, did this comic called Action Girl. It was also involved in Riot Girl and just finding out about cool stuff like that. So this was circa like 1992 or? Uh, probably 90. 90- Maybe 93. Okay. 
I know yeah. when I discovered like zines and comics in the slightly later 90s so maybe 96 97 like action girl was also really important to me and mm -hmm. it was something I could like find at the local comic shop that like the nerd boys I hung out with liked mm -hmm. but yeah, I just thought she, Sarah Dyer was, like, the coolest person. Yeah. And I love that she really responded to you and, like, mm -hmm. nurtured you. That's yeah, she was very encouraging. She Oh, she also had this newsletter, I just realized. Was the Action Girl, in addition to the comic book, she had Action Girl newsletter. Was it, like, a newsletter in the mail? It would come in the mail, um, and it listed zines. So I, I think once I got that, then I wrote to everyone who was in that and, like, asked them to send me, and send them cash and stamps in the mail, which is how I used to do it. Um and that's how yeah that's where it all started and living on staten island though you did live in new york city did you feel part of uh any of the other like punk or riot girl community once you discovered it that was happening or did you feel kind of isolated or cut off um i felt pretty isolated um i remember once in high school i tried to go to a riot girl meeting a riot girl new york city meeting it was in an I think it was in an NYU dorm, and I was just like very. I tried to find it. I didn't. Was very confused. I couldn't figure out what the how to get into the building, so I just gave up and left. Um, but that's when I went. I was still in high school, so yeah, I was not not really hooked up in person with punk or riot girl culture. It was definitely more virtual for me through the mail mostly. And um, did you consider yourself a feminist already when you discovered uh, scenes, or was did zines help crystallize how you thought of yourself as a political person um at six, 15 or 16 i probably already considered myself a feminist my mother's a hardcore feminist as well so she she raised me right she sure did yeah <laughs> um so how did uh zines influence like your sense of identity in politics if you already knew you were feminist and maybe it was like kind of a confirmation of what you believed um especially feeling a little isolated on Staten Island, were zines helpful in this aspect? I think so. I mean, I really loved, I loved Sassy Magazine, and I also read um, YM and Seventeen Magazine, and they were, you know, they had articles about women's issues, and Sassy was definitely feminist, but the zines were definitely more raw and personal. Um, so I was reading, people would write about things like, um, like eating disorders or sexual abuse, um, different issues around pop culture. Um, and it really just crystallized some of the issues in a more personal way than maybe the more mainstream media that I was also ingesting at the time did. And then um, because they were written by teen, a lot of the people I corresponded with were also teenagers, so I could relate to them a bit more that way um, they also talked way more about race and queerness so I feel like that also I was just getting like oh my mind blown blown away by that stuff too and when did you start your own zine I started my own zine um, maybe a couple months after getting that doing your own zine um, I had what was my first one I was the ter it was terrible I remember what it was called um, but I think my parents had a, they had a fax machine <laughs> Please tell me you made the copies of your zine on the fax machine. <laughs> yes. This is amazing. That is so resourceful. Right? I don't even know if I know how to do that now. I don't think you can. It was like that thermal paper, so it all like disappeared eventually. This is very arty. I have a friend who just made a photo zine on the thermal oh, paper. Really? Specifically wow. so it will disappear yes. in like five years or something. Yeah, so it was very, it was ephemeral. Yes, I eventually did photocopy, photocopy it on like on, with a Xerox machine. But yeah, I was really, I was, um, loved drawing at the time. So I had, it was just like mostly pictures and like some captions. And so I used the cop, the fax machine to make copies of what I had drawn, um, yeah, and then I eventually brought it to Staples and photocopied it, and it was it was terrible. Yeah, it was not a good, not a good first scene. That's okay. You went on to make zines that I think were really beloved by a lot of people, like you might as well live, and quantify and really like explore very deeply uh, issues of like intersectional what what we'd call intersectionality of race, class, gender, sexuality, all those things, as well as. Um, sort of the feminist and riot girl politics of the day. So in this 
discovering zines and Riot Girl, did you identify as a Riot Girl or as a punk or like with that punk culture or did you just find this was a way where you could find more of a community? I went back and forth with the Riot Girl label. Um, I remember writing an essay in my zine in high school, the zine Boredom Sucks. <laughs> Great name. It's an um, excellent name. Yes. It's an excellent name. Such a great name. Because <laughs> the abbreviation is BS. Um, so this article was about how I was not a Riot girl. And I don't remember what my reasons were. But um, this is after my experience of trying to go to the, the meeting and just being very confused. Um, but then I did go to Riot Girl. Eventually, I did go to some Riot Girl meetings. And I went to Riot Girl conventions. So for a couple years, I did identify more as a Riot girl. In terms of punk, I was never... I was never very punk. I identified more with the DIY scene and Riot Girl ends of it. Um, I did, however, rem do remember going into the um, punk chat on America Online, which is also which is how I met um, some other Riot Girls um, and people in zines and DIY. And what impact did those um, Riot Girl conventions have on you? What was your, as we'd say now, your takeaway from them? <laughs> Uh, well, initially they were really cool because it was, um, it was also meeting people in person, people I'd been corresponding with for years in some cases and just trading zines and letters with. So I enjoyed meeting people in person and there were workshops and bands. Um, but also the downside was also realizing how different, um, I felt from a lot of people attending those conventions. Um, so it was very, very white, mm -hmm. um, mostly uh middle class i mean i'm mostly middle class but it was just very it wasn't as reflective of my experience growing up um as a person of color in new york city so mm -hmm. actually going to conventions i was like oh huh like this scene is a lot whiter than i had realized which you know when it was everything was through the mail how would i didn't necessarily know that until i met people face to face yeah, and where were these conventions like were you at the one in the bay area or yeah, so I went to then the first one I went to I think was in Philly, that might have been in '96 or '95, um, and then in New York City and the Bay Area, and that was sort of the last straw for me. I remember I don't remember what precipitated that, but I remember after it, declaring Riot Girl is dead um, because there were some really messed up things that had happened, which I can't entirely remember. But I just remember the feeling of this is like I. This is not my scene. Yeah. Got it. And you were in college by this time. Mm -hmm. So you had a little more autonomy. Definitely. Um, when we met um, in Portland, Oregon around 2000, you had just graduated from college and I had just graduated from high school. And I remember one of the first times we met up in Portland, Oregon, where you had moved after college and I had moved after high school, you handed me this patch you had silkscreened and it was like a studded bracelet and it said punk rock expatriate on it. And you were like, yes. And <laughs> I, I have this image in my mind of you being like really proud and just feeling like this was something you wanted to proclaim. And I, I feel in my memory, it comes out of that kind of feeling of disgust of like this is not my scene this is really white and just doesn't seem to have a place for me yet relating to some of those DIY like do-it-yourself ideals so mm -hmm. I'm just curious um what did punk rock expatriate mean to you and is that something you still kind of <laughs> identify with or have you moved on well I had totally forgot about it until you mentioned it to me um, a couple of days ago I was like oh yeah punk rock expat um which was was my America Online Instant Message, uh, whatever you call that, your name, AIM name, um, probably doesn't exist anymore. But so when I made that, um, I believe it was after a couple months or a year of living in Portland, Oregon, and just being really fed up with the music scene there and just feeling really isolated and just people being just not nice, <laughs> just like kind of nasty and gossip, really gossipy and unfriendly. So going to shows and just being totally ignored and just like, this is not a welcoming scene or environment. And just at some point, I just decided to boycott going to shows. And I think that's when I made that patch that said punk rock um, expatriate, because I still like the idea of DIY. The thing was, you know, the patch was screen printed. 
Um, I like the some of the aesthetics of punk rock, like the studded bracelet, um, but it still seemed like a place that I uh, was sort of home, but felt exiled from. Yeah. Did you meet other people who felt that way or, or you felt related to that, either from the, at this point, I guess we could call it post-Riot Girls scene or the punk scene or the DIY scene, or did you feel kind of you were your own movement oh no 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 there were plenty i feel like there were plenty of people who felt also felt disaffected from from punk rock or from riot girl or from even diy culture for Mm -hmm. sure great um so i want to skip a little bit in time um because now we're talking about more adult life than teen life and um you graduated uh bard college and you were working in uh, social services. Um, I remember I really felt like you were a grown-up feminist when I met you because you worked at, um, I believe, a crisis hotline and a domestic violence um, service agency. I, I think you can correct me. Um, and I just was like, wow, Lauren is a grown-up feminist with a feminist job, even though you're working two part-time jobs because full-time employment in Portland was really hard to get around 2000 and um, it remained that way for a very long time. Um, But I guess what I want to ask you about is um, with your work after college in social services agencies and then going into a sociology PhD program, how did that work like deepen your feminism and sense of identity and politics and beyond kind of the riot girl sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, when I graduated from college, I, so I had majored in sociology, gender studies, and multi-ethnic studies, and sort of like the common question anyone who with those degrees gets is, well, what are you going to do with that? Um, so then when I actually found um, a job working at a domestic violence shelter, I was like, this is, a, this is the type of job you get. There's like, I'm putting my degree to use. Like, this is exactly the type of work um, that I wanted to be doing. So yeah, and I was working... I think initially I worked part-time at a bakery cafe um, and worked part-time doing outreach at the shelter. And then um, then I had two part-time jobs at the shelter. It was for the same shelter. One was doing volunteer work, volunteer coordinating. The other was doing outreach. So there's still just piecing together because there's no such thing as full-time work in Portland at the time. Um, and now I just totally don't remember what your question oh, was. Oh, it was a long question. So I guess I'm just curious, like, as you were doing this actual work in the community, how did that deepen your politics and mm. your sense of feminism and mm-hmm. beyond Riot Girl, Or how did Riot Girl influence that? Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, the, the shelter I worked at was a the oldest um, domestic violence shelter on the West Coast. It had a deep roots in grassroots feminism and still had deep roots in the um, feminist community in Portland, Oregon. Um, I don't know if it still does today, but at the time it, it really did. So I felt like I was had a job doing feminism, especially my job as a doing outreach and volunteer coordinating, um, not so much the social service ends of things, mm-hmm. but doing things where I was literally going to junior high schools and high schools and community organizations and talking to people about um, sexual violence and domestic violence and doing support groups with women, which is in my mind a form of consciousness raising and volunteer coordinating coordinating also involved a lot of education. So that end of things I really felt was um, deep in my ideas of feminism and was working with other people who fully embrace the ideals of feminism. Um, not so much Riot Girl, though, you know, the things I'd learned about intersectionality from Riot Girl and from my education fit into that as well. When I moved to Brooklyn and I worked at a different shelter, it didn't have, that one felt way more social service mm-hmm. It did not have the, it was also one of the oldest programs in the con- domestic violence programs in the country, but it was, um, and people might have individually identified as feminist, but it didn't really have a as feminist, the grassroots feminist as of an ethos as the Portland one did. So it was more based in social services and less in activism, maybe, or consciousness raising? I would say so. I mean, the director and the um, my d- other supervisor were definitely, they were lesbian feminists. There were lots of lesbian feminists there, but some of the workers were more, um, it was just more professionalized. Mm-hmm. And we were part of a larger social service agency. It wasn't independent like the one in Portland was. Got it. 
Um, so you in after you did that work, you went back to school to do your PhD in sociology at the City University of New York, and you in your academic work, you actually were building on work you did in undergraduate, mm-hmm. um, in your undergraduate thesis, which is around reproductive justice and technology and inequity. So I'm very curious, like how did you get interested in these topics? They're connected to kind of riot girl punk rock feminism but also very different from it so Mm -hmm. I'm just really and this is the work you still do today so I'm just really interested to know like how did you get interested in those topics and maybe you can tell us a little bit I know we're skipping a little around in time but a little bit about your undergraduate thesis Mm -hmm. and then your subsequent books (laughs) sure um, so when I was an undergrad, like I said, I majored in sociology, um, gender studies, and multi-ethnic studies. And at Bard College, everyone has to do a senior project. Um, and so I was trying to figure out what I could do that would involve all my major plus my concentrations. Um, and I've always been fascinated by, <laughs> have had a morbid fascination with eugenics. Um, and I was interested in feminist politics and I think I said this in the podcast I recorded earlier this week. (laughs) However, um, so I knew I was going to write about reproductive rights um, and race and issues of race and class. I'd already decided that. But I had a professor um, who told me about this book that had recently come out by Dorothy Roberts called Killing the Black Body. And reading that, along with reading things by Angela Davis and other women of color scholars, um, I just really got interested in this idea about reproduction being used as a form of social control at the same time it can also be a tool of liberation for people. Um, So I just really in that project I was looking at really the history of reproductive rights in the United States um, for um, going back to slavery times as Dorothy Roberts does um, through the present day and the way it's been used again as a tool of both liberation and social control. Um, so that's why I got interested in that as an undergrad, and then I did the work in domestic violence shelters. Um, and when I went back to grad school, I thought I would continue doing work um, studying domestic and sexual violence um, as an academic. But at that point, I was just like really burnt out from that work and went back to the reproductive rights work. So can you tell us a little bit about your PhD thesis, which became your first book? and what you investigated there, because I think it's really interesting and takes um, the ideas you started thinking about in your undergraduate thesis to a whole another level and mm-hmm. different direction. Sure, so in grad school, I began um, to study this phenomenon known as reproductive tourism. And reproductive tourism is when people travel to other countries in order to access um, reproductive services, usually infertility services like in vitro fertilization, um, but more ethically fraught things like surrogacy, um, sex selection, and buying um, gametes, buying sperm and eggs. So looking at why people travel across national borders to do this. um, And my focus was looking at the United States. When I first started studying this, India was um, was in the media and was starting to be studied academically as a place where people would go in order to contract with women to carry babies for them. So there was all this focus on India, but um, I found in my work that all people um, were also coming to the United States for these services. And going to India, you can get a surrogate for much, much cheaper than you would in the United States. So I was sort of trying to figure out why would someone come to the United States? and what I concluded was that in a lot of countries around the world, it's it's actually illegal to pay someone to carry a baby for you. It's also illegal to um, use technology to select the sex of your baby. It's also illegal in many places to pay someone for their um, sperm or their eggs. So people come to the United States for these things because they are legal here. I didn't know, which is my own ignorance, until I was reading some of your articles on the train down here that... I realize you can select the sex of your baby, but that is bonkers. <laughs> you can sort it... of, you can sort it's not 100%, but you can vastly increase the likelihood of it. Yes. So this happened in a couple different ways. So in legal and illegal in much of the world is once um, someone is already pregnant, using screening technology to figure out the sex of um, 
the fetus and then terminating. So that's that's um, illegal in many, many countries. It's not actually illegal here. You can do it. But um, most of the sex selection that I was looking at was people um, before they're pregnant. So they're using in vitro fertilization and they can screen the embryos mm-hmm. um, to see if they have two X or two Y chromosomes and only selecting what they want. So it's not, it's still ethically fraught. It's for some many people not as ethically fraught as actually terminating. I can see that. And that's what I figured they were doing. And it's obvious to me that you could do that. But I just thought, wow, like that's a service people will pay for. Oh, yeah. They will pay. They will pay a lot of money for that. Yes. Wow. Yes. This is such a rich topic. And I come at it from a complete outsider. But what were some of the um, findings that really surprised you in doing that research uh, and writing your thesis, which is now mm-hmm. your book? Um, I would say one of the one of the things that really struck me, um, and this is how, one of the opening stories that I tell in, in the book is, uh, so I was at a conference in New York City, um, and at, it, was at the, it was a conference, it was mostly for people who wanted to have children using um, infertility treatment or through adoption. But I happened to be at a panel that was mostly lawyers and service providers. And at this conference, um, at this panel, they were looking at the issue, um, I believe they were looking at surrogacy in general, or maybe egg donation, I'm not sure exactly what the topic was, I don't remember. But there was this man from India who was there, and his job was to um, find surrogates in India for clients who were either in India or in other countries. And at this um, panel, there were all these other lawyers and people who worked at these fertility clinics um, they all just jumped down this guy's throat and so um, and thought what he was doing was like really ethically uncool uncool and just like really just exploitation. Um, and I remember sitting there and thinking, you all are doing the same exact thing in the context, but you're doing it in the United States just because it's not an Indian woman um, you're contracting with, you're contracting with an American woman. The same issues of possible exploitation are still going on and sort of, that led me to think about, well, what is what is going on here that you could not, there was just this real disconnect um, that, oh, it's only when it's brown women that it's exploitation, um, but if it's a, an American military wife, it's totally cool. Um, so that's that was one of the things that I, that I thought was kind of bonkers to use your language. <laughs> to yeah. use my non-academic language. Yeah. I also remember when you were doing research around this, uh, the egg freezing technology was like a newer technology that was in a kind of legal gray area, but mm-hmm. you were going to all these information sessions and mm-hmm. I remember it being like cosmos and manicures and, you know, freeze your eggs. And mm-hmm. where do you feel like capitalism and sort of ideas of what women are or mm-hmm. who women are play into this i mean it really seems to me that they're just playing into these very stereotypical like ideas mm-hmm. of gender well yeah for sure so one of the when i was doing my dissertation research i went to this event called manicures and martinis um which was um at a nail salon and they were um this is like in the sex in the city days so there were these things there was this drink called a fertility fertility teeny something like that um so they had some alcoholic drinks and like non-alcoholic drinks and like those miniature remember the mini cupcakes it was just like very just struck me like very everything was very pink and very gendered um and it wasn't about egg freezing it was really about it wasn't supposed to be about egg freezing it was really about aging and fertility decline that um in new york city and other cities in the country they were it was really famous there was this population of women in their late 20s through their 30s, through their early 40s, who are starting to worry that they are running out of time, that they are single, um, or if they're with someone, they're just not ready or in a place to have kids yet. So that's really what this was about, was about how do you um, stay healthy and prevent, maybe if possible, infertility. Um, However, as soon as it went to the Q&A, all the initial questions were all about egg freezing. So the women who were there, they already had already heard some of the discourse that was started to permeate um, about egg freezing as, oh, this is the way to do it. Um, and the doctor that who was speaking at this, um, he he didn't really go there. Like he answered their questions, but he he himself wasn't suggesting that this was the answer. Um, I did go to other events where it really was posed as the answer, 
um this one event it was like take control it was like stop the stop the biological clock take control of your fertility and there was a dating specialist there and a psychologist really framing this idea of if you freeze your eggs um you will uh, not appear so desperate anymore. So then you could land yourself a husband. It was very heteronormative. Land yourself a husband, right? Um, and then when you're ready, you you can have a baby. Um, so it's very, all the marketing involved in it, the, the idea that women are spending too much time um, focusing on uh, non-progressive things, which they have to do in our economy because who has time to have a baby when they're, 25 and are just building their career. And this is now a lot of what your research is focusing on for Mm -hmm. your second book is um, that how women who don't have children are approaching that and thinking about that. Women Mm -hmm. in the U.S., I should say. So um, that is really interesting because I feel like now you're having a lot of those conversations. So mm-hmm. can you tell us about what you're working on now and how it relates to that? Sure. Yeah. So um, when I was started to study egg freezing, I was just struck by the way that the fertility industry was framing it as this is the answer to um, women delaying pregnancy, right? There's this um, idea that women in their 20s and their 30s and their early 40s um, are not yet ready to have kids. They keep pushing off um, because they don't have partners or because it's really expensive or they're working on their PhD or whatever. Um, so here's the answer. If you don't want to um, be 45 and realize you've, you're now infertile and can't have a kid, freeze your eggs when you are in your 20s um, and then they'll be waiting for you. So my question has been, well, what if we look at it from the perspective of women rather than from the fertility industry? Mm. Do women in their 20s and 30s really think about the fertility in such a way like oh i um i know that i can freeze my eggs or i know that you know once i'm ready to have kids i can do um use fertility treatment so i'm not going to focus on that right technology is going to be the answer so that was really the question so i've been talking to women in their uh, mid-20s through um late 30s to figure out like do they want kids and if they do want kids do they worry that they're going to be infertile once they are ready to have kids? And do they plan to use technology? And are they thinking about freezing their eggs? Um, and if they don't want kids, what's that about? And how is it like um, for them? Do they feel st- stigmatized for that choice? Um, so that's really what I've been exploring for the second book. And what have you been really high level? What have you been finding um, about that, you know, are people aware of technologies? How do they think about them? And for women who don't want kids, do we feel like that stigma is easing at all? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, in terms of technology, a lot of the women I've talked to, they are aware of it. They might have friends or coworkers who have used, a lot of people know people who have gone through IVF, mm-hmm. right, or some other sorts of treatments. But most, I would say the great majority of the people I talk to have no interest in technology. Um, Some of them are just kind of creeped out by it. Um, Others just think it's too invasive or they know how freaking expensive it is. In vitro is going to cost you at least 30 grand and it's usually not covered by insurance. So even the middle class or upper class women I've spoken to just just feel like that's not that's not going to happen. It's just they don't have the money for that. Um, They'd have to take out a second mortgage or something. Um, So technology is not really seen as as the answer for for many of them. Some of them do expect to use it um, and they're more okay with it but the majority are not. Um, For the childless women, some of them identify as Mm child-free. Not all of them, but many of them see themselves as actually almost part of this. It's almost like an identity um, that they've taken on or they're part of a movement. Um, They communicate with other women who are child-free online. Um, And many of them told me that they do still in um, the 2000s feel stigmatized, that people don't um, agree with their choices, really judge them, or just um, don't believe them. <laughs> Think that, oh, you'll change your mind when you get older, that, you know, your biological clock will tick in and you'll suddenly want babies. Um, and many of them just said, no, I've never wanted them. And I, like, I've crossed the line. <laughs> and whatever that imaginary age is that you told me I would want them has passed and it still hasn't happened. As someone yourself who does not have human children, <laughs> you have two nice pet children. <laughs> Sorry. Um, how, how do you feel about this, like having these conversations? I realize as a researcher, you kind of 
need to take a personal step back. But Mm -hmm. as you've been having all these conversations, where do you find yourself Mm -hmm. in them? Or what do you find yourself thinking about in relationship to your life and your choices? Mm -hmm. I personally have never really felt any stigma for not having kids. Maybe it's because I've always lived in urban urban areas in northeast cities where it doesn't seem like that big a deal to be in your 30s or 40s and not have kids i mean most of my friends don't have kids either so i've never really faced that that stigma but i i get that people still do and some of the women i've talked to have been in um rural areas or places in the south where they they have definitely felt more pressure um but yeah i'm totally i've never felt pressure to have children no pressure from family i'm totally cool with my choice not to have kids I don't personally identify as child free but I don't feel like it's part of my identity or that I need to uh bond with other people Mm -hmm. over this fact I think I like children children are cool um I like my niece um babies I don't not a huge fan of babies per se children are cool though that's awesome yeah it's funny I also do not have kids and never plan to have kids and I was visiting a family member this fall who is older than me in um in their 50s i'm in my late 30s and it hasn't come up for me for many years actually having kids or not um i had a conversation with my mother when i was 32 and had just gone through a breakup of a i would say yeah my like second significant adult relationship or whatever and i just said to my mom i was like i need to be really clear right now that i am not having kids you know, whatever you need to do to kind of think about that, I suggest you do it because I've always felt this way. But I guess you speak a lot in your research about this magic age people talk about, Mm -hmm. which is 35. So I guess in some ways I had that in my head as like, oh, this is when people won't bug me about this. But Mm -hmm. no one really did ever bug me. But I think maybe my mom was hoping. So I just wanted to have this very honest conversation. So Mm -hmm. it hasn't really come up since until, yeah, this fall. And maybe it was just visiting these other relatives they just wanted to have something to talk about I'm not sure but just kind of out of nowhere um it was like well you and your partner uh, you want to have kids and we were both horrified and we were like no and it was yeah I got the like you'll change your mind I'm like I'm almost 38 years old like I know what my mind is Mm -hmm. and yeah there was never this I think there is this idea like, oh, it'll just like tick, mm-hmm. switch over and you'll want. So it's just interested. I'm very excited to read more of your research and your book um, when it comes out. And just to see like how family and um, societal expectations shape that for other women. Um, one thing I was also thinking about when you were talking about the marketing around mm-hmm. fertility and expectation, I went to this conference around um women being successful at work, you know, off getting more money, negotiating. Um, but one of the sponsors was like a fertility screener. So like with your conference fee, oh, you wow. could get a free fertility screening. Mm-hmm. And I just found that so creepy. And I was like, we're at a conference that's like explicitly about networking with other like creative, professional, like driven women. And it was very diverse. And I think the organizers did a really great job in terms of the speakers and the diversity of like, feminism exposed it was still capitalist you know Mm -hmm. we're still in that framework of capitalism um but we need to make money to survive so you know you might as well not be underpaid but right Mm -hmm. (laughs) someone else is doing the same job as you and making more money but I was just found it really creepy and I was Mm -hmm. like so I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that well would they ever ever have that at a conference aimed at men that would be ridiculous I mean you're at this conference, that's totally ridiculous, but they wouldn't even enter their minds that like, oh my God, like these men are, you know, career driven and therefore what are they going to do if they get too old to have kids? Um, that's not even a, a question. So um, the gender aspect of that is just um, totally messed up. Um, and yeah, just fitting in this idea that women who are career minded or professional, um, it might be fine for now, but you're just going to have to deal you just have to figure something out because clearly you still need to have babies and you're going to want to have babies and if you aren't thinking about it now you better start planning part of your career planning process like as you ask for that raise and I'm absolutely not dissing people who do plan to have kids like 
actually, you really should be thinking about that as you ask Mm -hmm. phrases. And unfortunately, a lot of times um, when women do have kids or plan to have kids, they are discriminated against and don't get raises. Whereas like men who have kids, it's like, oh, you have a kid, you have more expenses. Mm -hmm. Like here's, you know, it's the daddy bonus, the daddy bonus. Exactly. It's it's fucked up. Totally. (laughs) So it is something to think about and and strategize around if that is what you plan to do. Um, So speaking of kind of changing ideas and um, mores and society, you teach undergraduates. Mm -hmm. uh, And I'm just curious, you teach women's studies and gender studies classes. Um, You teach about family structure. You teach about zines. I've been lucky to come and talk to your students about zine making, which is always really fun and gratified. Um, But I'm really curious, like, as you're watching young people in their like teens and early twenties grapple with ideas of like feminism and identity and politics, what do you find has changed since you were that age, like in undergraduate or just coming out of high school? And what do you feel is still kind of the same? Hmm, good question. Um, I would think one of the things that has changed is they are not not all of them, but many, many of them are. I mean, they're definitely more. I don't want to say tech savvy, but they have more access to um, really instant information, right? Including information about feminism and celebrities and celebrity celebrity feminism, I would say. So some of the, you know, I had, like I said, I had read Seventeen magazine and YM. Um, I watched a lot of TV, but I feel like the Instagram culture and Snapchat um, and just Twitter and just like the way they get their information so much quicker than waiting for a monthly magazine to come out they just seem to know a lot more but it's also on a very you know for many of them on a pretty surface level um the question of feminism you know when I began teaching um I would frequently ask my students if they identified as feminist and most of them did not and it was really feminist feminist was like a uh, not a slur but like not a uh not a term most people most young women at the time wanted to identify with which I I myself didn't understand because I you know, always embraced it. Uh, but I feel like young women today are more likely, like feminism has come back. Has come back. It's not necessarily the type of feminism that I'm into, um, but they are, um, they're more likely today, I believe, to identify as feminists. So maybe I should have asked you this question in the beginning. What is the type of feminism you identify that feels like home to you? Um, how would you describe it? And then what do you feel like your students are embracing that seems not so much home to you, <laughs> even if you respect it and kind of can see their perspective. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know I teach this stuff, so I know there are like lots of different types of feminism. Um, I don't know if there's like a label I would put on it, but I'm definitely more of the intersectional um, anti-capitalist bent of it versus the more consumerist choice feminism, which, you know, if you're really, if you're young and you're just figuring learning stuff, this is what's really accessible to you. And that, that's cool um, to like initially embrace that type of feminism, the like the, you know, the buy something that says feminist on it. That's cool. I mean, I have clothing that says feminist on it, but like not yet having an analysis like that, mm-hmm. that takes time, that takes work. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's a sense you can like buy into um, any kind of identity almost, mm-hmm. but especially, yeah, like a feminist or political one um, versus the work it takes. And I mean, we used to talk about this a lot, but I, I especially feel like for myself as a white woman, there's, you know, I don't want to flatter myself here, but I just remember like the physical feeling of doing the intellectual work mm-hmm. of really trying to understand intersectionality really deeply and how that implicated me and how I moved through the world and the choices I was making. And when you're just seeing something as like a pure choice in a marketplace, it really, Mm -hmm. yeah, it takes away that analysis. But I think that's why it's so important. There's professors like you who can push people on these questions and do so in a respectful manner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why that's the value of women's and gender studies courses. They get, they get to go a bit deeper deeper with the stuff than just, you know, what they see on Kim Kardashian's Instagram account. And well, I'm sure she, she probably, I assume she identifies as a feminist. It's not my type of feminism, but all right. Yeah. That's fine. 
Um, absolutely. It's very, very couched in capitalism, yes. for one thing. Um, so where would you kind of place Riot Girl and punk rock feminism in your life? Like, what do you feel is the legacy of it mm. in your life? Uh, well, there's still the, the DIY ethic will always be a part of me, for sure. Um, I don't know, just kind of, and part of the just scrappiness, I think, just really just not necessarily aiming for, you know, the the TED Talk stage of, you know, in my profession of wanting to be, public scholarship is awesome, but like not really aspiring to become a brand, you know, or sell, have a best, you know, it'd be nice to have a bestseller, but that's not really what I necessarily aspire to, um, because I really like the, the idea of scrappiness, I think, is really <laughs> That's yeah. That's the only word I get. I keep coming back to is scrappiness. That's very refreshing in this day and age. And you know, I'm a marketing professional now. <laughs> Just hilarious. Um, you know, where we're all supposed to be out repping our own brand, but you do kind of have a brand as the dandy prof. It's a, it's a very small. It's a very small, small brand. Uh, but yeah, like my Instagram account is private. Like I don't. I mean, I have a website, um, but yeah, it's very, there's not a lot of work that goes into it. I'm just more thinking of, have you seen any of the Fire Festival documentaries? Not yet. Uh, I watched the one on Hulu and I was like, I I know this is the world we live in, but I, yeah, horrified, horrified at our, at our culture today. That is fair. Um, also horrified at our culture today for many reasons. Um, so let's talk um, as we wrap up here about our culture today. Um, what do you make of the 90s nostalgia in full swing uh, that we have been experiencing for the past few years? Um, and also, how do you feel about the Bikini Kill oh. reunion shows? So the 90s revival Okay, for someone who was in the '90s, I I love it when people in their 30s and 40s are embracing it. Like, yeah, we have we have our stuff back. It's bizarre to me to see teenagers and people in their 20s really into 90s culture. I'm sure you know when I was young, um, and you know really liking things from the 80s. People who are older than me probably thought that was weird as well. But going into coffee shops and seeing, um that the baristas are only playing music from the 90s. And like, how do you even, like, not even good 90s music, like bad 90s music? It's What's bad 90s music? Like music. Spin Doctors. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. Or Sugar Ray. No. Yeah, yeah, okay. bad stuff. So mm. that that is weird to me. Um, some of the fashion is, you know, it's weird. It just makes me feel, it makes me feel old. You know, that's to sum it up. That just, I feel, I feel like an old. Um, but for me, I like, most of the bands I see today are, are like I hardly ever see new music. Like I, all these bands I was really into in the '90s that I maybe didn't get to see or saw once or twice. Um, seeing them on the reunion tours is kind of cool, right? It's kind of sad, but it's also um, cool to be there with other people in there. Everyone there is in their 30s and 40s. Like, oh yeah, we're old and like we're all standing here being, and our legs and backs hurt, but we're gonna we're gonna wait till you know the last song is played. And did you see Bikini Kill the first time around? I did not, and I I don't remember why. I mean, I saw a lot of the um, the Riot Girl acts back in the day, but yeah, I don't. I miss somehow missed out on ever seeing Bikini Kill before they broke up. Yeah, yeah. I, I I was a little too late. I think I got into them like ninety six, ninety seven, and they if they hadn't broken up yet, they were like on on diff an indefinite hiatus. Mm-hmm. So saw La Tigra more times than I could count mm-hmm. in Boston and New York and probably Portland as well, but uh, missed Bikini Kill, so I, I am excited as well. Me too. Um, we're going to have a Riot Girl sleepover um, after the Bikini Kill show, and we're going to like give an update, um, but I think it'll be interesting, but I'm sort of curious, like honestly, how they're going to pull it off, because mm-hmm. I feel that their music comes out of such a specific place of like rage Mm -hmm. um and I just wonder how you channel that when you're in your 40s say and you just have this whole life I mean there's a lot to feel rage about now so um 
but I do feel like, oh, this it's just going to be interesting, and I'm mm-hmm. excited, and they're amazing performers, so I'm excited to see it. But Yeah, like, will they have new music, or are they just playing their old songs? Yeah. I and also, their songs are very short. So like, yes, they are very short. <laughs> it's not going to be. We'll see. Um, check back, and we'll, <laughs> we'll give you an update. Um, to close out, I'd love to know if you have, it's going to be really cheesy, but any advice or thoughts for uh, young people of color like yourself, maybe they're queer, they might think they are, who are growing up in isolated places, whether that's in a neighborhood in a city that doesn't feel like theirs or a large high school or a rural area. Do you have any advice? Uh, I mean, I would say, I mean, it seems like not that it, not that things are easier today, but I think it's, there's opportunities today if you have access to the internet to find your community. I mean, I think that would be my main ad- advice. Um, find your community. They exist, that they are, they're somewhere. You know, I found them through the mail. Um, today, you don't have to go to the post office all the time like I did and have a P.O. box. You can find those communities online. Um, but also be careful of what you find on the, online because there's also creepy stuff mm-hmm. in rabbit holes online. Um, so that would be the other word of caution there and are you still in touch with folks from that community you forged through the mail over 20 years ago I am <laughs> yeah I with a lot not everyone but a lot of people and when the bikini ticket bikini kill tickets um, were being released I was in contact with many of them as we agonize over getting those tickets and not being able to get those tickets and then finally being able to get those tickets and yeah, the sort of the everyone's just sort of came out again for it was like, oh, Bikini Girls playing. <laughs> oh my god! And it's so interesting because these are people like yourself who I think were very disaffected with Riot Girl, especially the whiteness of it. Mm-hmm. And yet it is, as we were texting about it, like it sort of activated this old Riot Girl whisper network. Mm-hmm. But now we all have cell phones. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, the text message chains <laughs> went out. But oh, there's going to be this like this pre-sale code. You got it. This is how you get it. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much um, for talking with me, and um, I will put links to all your stuff in the show notes. And very excited to read your second book. Um, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> uh, thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Eleanor. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of Riot Woman. You can find out more about Lauren's work at dandyprof.com and follow her on Twitter at dandyprof, D-A-N-D-Y-P-R-O-F. For more information on me and this podcast, you can visit eleanorcwhitney.com slash podcast. And hey, while you're there, I'd love it if you signed up for my mailing list. The song Half Lie by Talene Kali is our theme music. You can hear more of her work and support her at talenekali.com. Finally, if you liked this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. It means a lot to me and it helps others discover the podcast. Thanks, and until next time.